So good afternoon or good whatever time of day it is with you. Today I'm going to give a presentation entitled In Praise of Self. Now I realized for some Orthodox Buddhists that might sound a little strange, but hopefully by the end of this reflection you'll get a clearer idea of where I'm coming from. In some ways, this touches on what is very central to what we're calling a secular dharma or a secular approach to Buddhism, in that we're focusing our attention on our own existence, on our own experience in this world that we inhabit with others, other human beings, other forms of life that may, as far as we know, be the only world that's ever been like this. And the focus in this secular approach is not to transcend the self, somehow to go beyond it, uh, to leave it behind in some way, but rather it is to find a practice that enables uh, you and me and all people really to flourish more fully to become the sort of person they aspire to be. So this approach is much more about self-creation, and I'll say more about that later, than it has to do with self-transcendence. Yesterday, we started with a dialogue between Vachagota and Gautama, Vajagota asks, is there a self? Silence. Is there not a self? Silence. And Vajagota gets up and goes away. And I'm sure many of you are uh, familiar with the idea that in Buddhism, in most schools of Buddhism, there is a very clear uh, affirmation that in fact there is not a self. There is no self. So in terms of the dialogue with uh, Vajragota, it would appear that uh, Buddhism has opted for an answer to his question, namely, when asked, is there a self? Is there not a self? A good Buddhist should say, there is not a self. And then they'll have their own ways of explaining what that means, but the basic uh, position uh, is that in Buddhism there is no self. And the self is in a sense uh, the root of our confusion, uh, our ignorance, that instead of uh, experiencing ourselves purely as, as physical and emotional and mental states that come and go, that we project into this the idea that there is me, a self, a person who exists um, quite separately, but has its own uh, real existence. And the aim of Buddhist meditation in many traditions is to see through the illusion of self and to understand its emptiness, we might say, or to recognize that there is just this flow of conditions 
but there is no self or person needed to somehow hold it all together. Now, in classical terminology, those who believe in the existence of an eternal self are called eternalists, and those who deny that there is any self are called annihilationists. Sometimes that's simply put as uh, nihilists. So those who say there is no self, from this perspective, are slipping towards the annihilationist extreme. In other words, the idea that there really is nothing there in the end, that it is just um, experience is just a, a flows of conditions that come and go, and there's no core identity that's somehow holding the show together. Now, my sense is that um, in the course of its development, Buddhism tended uh, towards both of these extremes, both the extreme of annihilation and to the extreme of eternalism. But the first schools that emerged after the Buddha's death, I feel, opted very much for a kind of annihilationist view. This gave rise, um, one, two or three centuries later, we don't really know, to movements within the Buddhist community towards what is called Mahayana Buddhism, and there we start to find a reaction against this annihilationist stance. But what it leads to very often is the other extreme, eternalism. And so we find in uh, a number of Mahayana sutras uh, the notion that uh, there is within us the Buddha nature, the Tathagatagarbha, uh, the, 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 the essence of the Buddha is already within our own being. And this is understood as something that is eternal, that is radiant, that is already awakened or enlightened. And it's who we really are, as opposed to the fabricated ego with which we normally identify. Now that to me is just a slippage to the other extreme of eternalism, which is understandably arising in response to what looks like a kind of nihilistic position, but instead of returning to a middle way, slips over into the other perspective of positing an eternal self of one kind or another. So this middle way that we often speak about in Buddhism is in fact extremely elusive. It's very difficult to pin it down. It's a, if it is a middle way between being and not being, between is and isn't, then it's something that by its very nature is difficult to categorize within the uh, ideas and concepts that inform our language. The middle way shouldn't be thought of as something that exists or something that is, but it should be thought of very much as an unfolding process, or as a, of a, a way of living, a way of being in the world. It's a kind of constant attention to our experience where we seek, not always successfully, 
but to maintain a kind of balance, neither slipping towards eternalism on the one hand, believing that there's something real and true and ultimate uh, at the root of our experience, nor is it uh, slipping into a kind of nihilistic rejection that there is anything real at all. When we go back to the early Pali texts, we do not find a single occasion where Gautama denies or rejects the existence of the self. It's simply not to be found. And this comes to some people as a bit of a surprise, particularly if you've been taught that a core doctrine in Buddhism is that there is no self. We don't find that, though, in these early texts. Nonetheless, we do find plenty of passages in where the Buddha is very critical of attachment to the self, holding on to the self, becoming preoccupied with ideas of I, me, and mine. He's very critical of the idea of uh, a kind of aggrandized ego, which we might think of as conceit or pride or arrogance. These are what he seeks to work with. Not whether or not a self exists, that's an abstract, almost academic argument, if you wish, but rather what is our relation to ourselves? Do we have a clinging and a grasping about me and the importance and the centrality of me? And how does this affect how I relate to others? I see them too as fixed persons, some of whom I like, some of whom I don't like, but we categorize others in the same way that we categorized ourselves. So the problem with self is not whether it exists or doesn't exist. The problem with self is the relationship that we have to it. In particular, Gautama is interested in our relationship to ourself that prevents us from becoming the kind of person we aspire to be. In other words, if we become too attached to the notion of me and all the wonderful things that I've done and the wonderful things that I am interested in and my wonderful friends and so on, if we preoccupy ourselves with that, then that will prevent any further development or maturation or evolution of the kind of person we could become. And this, of course, touches again very centrally on the idea of ethics. The way that I would understand ethics, as opposed to morality, which I think we can understand simply as adherence to certain precepts and, and rules, ethics is the much larger question of how do we lead a good life. And central to that is the idea of the kind of person that we could become that would enable us to flourish fully. And it's this human flourishing, in other words, this sense that we're really more and more alive, that constitutes the good life. The opposite to that would be a life in which we constantly feel stuck and trapped 
and limited and going round and round in circles and not getting anywhere. And that's a life in which we're so caught up, entangled in our notions of me and mine and so forth and so on, that we are obstructed uh, from actually evolving and developing into the kind of person that we aspired uh, to be. One discourse that addresses this uh, question of self very directly is called the discourse on not-self, the Anatta Lakana Sutta. It's supposed to be the second teaching that the Buddha ever gave. Whether or not that's historically the case, I don't know. But what clearly is being addressed here is the idea of anatta, of not-self. It's also worth noting that in this uh, famous uh, discourse, once again, there is nowhere where Gautama says there is no self, the self does not exist. So what does he say when he explains what he means by anatta, not self? You notice perhaps that I'm not saying no self, but not self. This is how the text opens. The body is not the self. If it were, it would not get sick. You could tell your body, be like this, or don't be like that. But because, but because the body is not the self, it does get sick. You cannot tell it, be like this, or don't be like that. In other words, if we were our bodies, our feelings, our emotions, our mental states, if that were really us, then we should be able to simply uh, tell the body or the feelings or the emotions to be this way or to be that way. But obviously we can't. That one of the things that we encounter uh, very immediately in meditation is how our experience is basically happening by itself. Uh, we don't choose to breathe. We don't choose uh, for our hearts to beat or our neurons to fire or our, even our breath to be taken at every moment. But these things happen to us. These things are not within our control. I cannot wish or intend that they be otherwise or I can if I like, but I won't get very far. So the point that's being made here is that if we're to get a clearer understanding of what self is, first of all, we need to clear the decks of those areas in our experience that are not self, that are un -utter. This doesn't mean that there is no utter, no self. It just points to the fact that a considerable extent of our experience is not within our control. It's not me. It's not mine. It just does its own thing. It gets born, and then in the end it dies. So this points to the fact that those things that one cannot control 
we have to acknowledge that that is just the way they are and not to seek to needlessly and futilely try to somehow pretend that that's what I am and I can do something to in influence those things. I can't. And that requires a degree of humility to be able to say, I'm not in charge here. But that doesn't mean that there are not areas of my life that I can take charge of or take some responsibility for. So once again, we come back to ethics. The importance here is to recognize that although I cannot tell my body not to be sick, I am able to make choices within limitations as to how to respond to the world. I can choose if I'm going on, let's take a very simple example. If I'm going for a walk in the countryside and I come to a, a crossroads, I can choose to go right, I can choose to go left. And likewise, in much more urgent moral situations, I'm faced with a dilemma and I have a choice to be able to either say one thing, to say another, to do something, to do nothing. In other words, the domain of the self is the domain of ethical choice and action. So by differentiating between those areas of my experience that are out of my control, I can just let those things be, accept them for what they are and let them go. I'm also opening up with greater clarity those areas of my life in which I can exert some influence. I can, through my words and my deeds, make a difference in life. And that is ethics. That is why self is essentially an ethical concept. By denying the existence of self, in some respects, we're actually uh, denying the fact that we are moral agents, moral actors that can actually do things that can change and transform both ourselves and the world in which we live. Now, this approach to self uh, has a corollary in Western philosophy, in Stoicism. And I feel that the Anatalakana Sutta the discourse on not-self that I've just been referring to, can be understood as a Stoic text. And let me give you an example. This is a quotation from Epictetus. Epictetus was a Roman Stoic uh, philosopher. Um, he was uh, the inspiration and, in some senses, the teacher for Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, who's one of the most famous Stoics that's come down to us through history. And this is what Epictetus says. He says, the chief task in life is simply this, to identify and separate matters so that I can clearly, so that I can, so that I can say clearly to myself which are externals and not under my control and which have to do with the choices I actually control. Where then do I look for good and evil? Not to the uncontrollable externals, but within myself to the choices that are my own. I think this is very, very close to what uh, Gautama 
is teaching in the discourse on not-self. A more popular version of the Stoic philosophy is found in what is called the serenity prayer. This is much used in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and other um, groups to do with addictive behavior. And I'll just read it out. It's usually attributed to uh, Francis of Assisi. Uh, it's Christian in its, uh, in its language. But as we shall see, it is Stoic and Buddhist in its philosophy. This is the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In other words, give me the patience or may I have the capacity to accept and tolerate the things over which I have no control, like my body getting sick, for example. The courage, and again, I think it's important to bring in this notion of courage, the courage to change the things I can. In other words, once again, to be clear as to where I can make a difference in life. And that's through my words and my deeds that are ethical. But crucially, the, 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 in a sense, the most difficult part of this is to be able to tell the difference. And for that, I need wisdom. I need discernment to be able to distinguish between what I can control and what I can't control. Now, this leads us to... I think a, a very uh, different conception of self that, that we will find in a lot of uh, Buddhist uh, teaching. And this is a notion of self as basically a work in progress, an unfinished project, a narrative. In other words, in avoiding the extremes that the self is an eternal, radiant, divine being or there is no self whatsoever it's just a, atoms zooming around in space we find a, a middle way which sees the self like pretty much anything else as a process as something that is constantly unfolding and it is something that i have some responsibility for i can make differences not just to external moral situations in terms of my practice let's say of meditation my practice of the dharma or whatever other spiritual practice you may follow i am in fact working on myself i am examining my mind i am choosing to let go of certain habits of mind and i'm choosing to cultivate others that's right at the core of the four tasks, to embrace the situation we're in, to let go of our reactive habits, our, our grasping, our clinging, our greed, our hatred, our pride. Don't get caught up in that. That I have the freedom to let go of in order that I can then cultivate those qualities that can enable me to flourish more fully as a person. In other words, I'm a work in progress. I'm not a fixed something but nor am I nothing. I'm somewhere in the middle, the middle way between being and non-being. 
This is expressed very clearly, and I think very beautifully, in a verse from the Dhammapada. This is verse number 80, if you want to look it up, which says, just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the wise person tames the self. Self here is not being uh, dismissed at all, but it is being compared to three things, to an unirrigated field, to the constituent parts of an arrow, and to an unformed block of wood. And the task of the sage, or the wise person, is to irrigate the unirrigated barren field. So it's pointing to the fact that in many ways, our lives are not bearing much fruit, perhaps. They're not flourishing. They're not giving birth to things. It's like an unirrigated field. We need some water to flow in that space in order that plants can get nourishment and something can grow. This is very much an organic metaphor of human flourishing. Likewise, with an arrow, that often we feel as though we're somehow fragmented, that we have one part of us that is the parent at home, another part the executive in the office, another part a member of a political organization, another part someone who goes to church on Sunday. But they don't always sing in harmony. They are often somehow at odds with each other. Uh, we can switch them on, on and off in their turn, but we don't necessarily feel that our life has achieved the kind of integration and focus that we would aspire for. So a fletcher, a person who makes arrows, is someone who gathers these materials, puts them together in the shape and the form of an arrow, so that it can then function as an arrow focused on its target, and thereby, metaphorically, give us a way of thinking about how our own life, our own personhood, our own self, is likewise something that can become more integrated and focused, which is very much another feature of our flourishing. Or finally, ourselves are a bit rough. They're not very refined. They haven't uh, achieved a, a clear voice or form in the world. They're like an uncarved piece of wood. So we practitioners are like carpenters. We work with our raw materials, our our bodies, our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts, our minds, in such a way that we begin to shape and form them into the kind of person we aspire to be, the best possible version of ourselves, as is sometimes said. Now, I've been very inspired by that verse, and some of you who've heard me speak before or have read my books will be familiar with it. But I think it really does offer us a way of, of thinking about self that breaks us free from the binaries of believing there either is a permanent self, a true self on the one hand, or no self, uh, nothing at all 
on the other. This is the middle way approach. It's processual, it's ethical, and it is a constant practice in every moment that we live. This self-creation, as we might call it, um, operates within the framework of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path, which begins with, as we saw yesterday, uh, a vision of the world, um, which we noted was one that is both ethical, learning how to differentiate between what's skillful and unskillful, but also one that is skeptical in the sense that we don't attach ourselves to the binaries of being and non-being, is and is not. That that liberating, uh, skeptical, ethical perspective on life is the foundation of the Eightfold Path. That's where we begin. That's where the whole process is, is grounded. And that then gives us the uh, foundation for imagination, learning how to uh, imagine alternatives, imagine possible futures. It's an ethical imagination, our capacity to imagine what the other person is feeling, our capacity to imagine into the future how I, for example. So this ethical imagination is liberated by having let go of some, some of the fixed ideas that might prevent us from imagining a different kind of way of being in the world. And on the basis of that imagination, we then can imagine what to say, what to do, how to work. All of these other steps begin to unfold from there. And that then leads us to the way we apply ourselves, in our lives, the way we focus our energies, and the way we pay attention, the way that we practice mindfulness, the way we practice collectedness or concentration. So this taming or training of the self doesn't just operate in a vacuum, but it operates within a framework of these eight areas of human life that can uh, enrich the kind of person that we aspire to be. We're not just trying to be the best possible meditator or the most articulate writer or the greatest philosopher. These would only account for aspects of our total experience rather than be an idea that can include all the dimensions of who we are. So the Eightfold Path is very much the um, way Buddhism has described the way in which human individuals and societies can flourish. Um, and it's not surprising that the Eightfold Path is the first teaching the Buddha gave. He declares at the beginning of the first discourse that he has found a middle way. And what is that middle way? that middle way is the Eightfold Path. And then he goes on to the practice of this Eightfold Path, which has to do with embracing the situations we find ourselves in, embracing our life situations, letting go of our instinctive reactive habits, 
settling down into a non-reactive space and responding to the situation at hand. And that responsiveness is again another way of understanding the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is, is, is ethical through and through. It's not as though you have some bits of it have to do with ethics, others with meditation, others with wisdom. That's one way in which it has been read. But in fact, each dimension of the Eightfold Path has to do with how we live ethically within these different areas of our existence. But perhaps the, um, the discourse that uh, gives us the most affirmative account of self, in which we can really talk of a praise of self, is in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the discourse on the Buddha's passing, on his last uh, months of life, which is told in quite some detail. And one of the most famous passages that is cited uh, from Gautama is the last, or one of the last, instructions that he gives to uh, his followers uh, about two or three months before he actually dies. And he's speaking to Ananda, but he's speaking in the, in the vocative plural. In other words, when he says you, it doesn't mean you, Ananda. It means you in the plural, all of my followers, in other words. And this is what he says. Therefore, Ananda, you should live with oneself as an island, oneself as a refuge with no other refuge, with the Dharma as an island, the Dharma as a refuge, with no other refuge. Probably one of the most famous uh, pieces of text uh, in Buddhist literature. But again, like a lot of these pithy pronouncements, once you start looking into it a little bit more closely, it, comes out to be a lot more complicated than one might initially have thought. It's surprising um, that the word self is being used in such an affirmative way. And this, unfortunately, is often disguised in English translations because we usually read some, uh, something like, be a refuge unto yourself. And that obscures the fact that in the Pali, there is no unto yourself. There is simply the word atta. Atta or atman in Sanskrit is the word used here. And it simply means self. In other words, you, you yourself are an island. You yourself are a refuge. Again, we think of refuge as taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Here, we have exactly the same word, saranang, but it refers to your atta, your atman, yourself. With no other refuge, it says, but yourself. But then we hear, then we read in the next line something that confuses that a bit. It says, live with the Dharma as an island, the Dharma as a refuge with no other refuge. So how can you have 
to no other refuges. How can both the self and then the Dharma both be your only refuge? That's what the text says. The only way I can really understand this is to interpret it as meaning that the Dharma that you have internalized and integrated into your life that has become your own, become you in a way, that is your refuge. Not the Dharma as an abstract set of doctrines or practices or beliefs or truths, and not self in the purely banal sense of being one person as opposed to another person, but rather the self that you have become through your practice of the Dharma, that is your refuge. And the Dharma is often said to be the, the genuine refuge. The Buddha has gone, the Sangha might have dispersed. And remember, this text is being spoken at a time where the teachings and the Sangha, the monastics and so on, were dispersing. There was a crisis of war and other struggles going on at this period in the Buddha's life. So in the end, when, uh, you know, when, when you really, you know, come down to, you know, a conflict or a strife in life, the only thing you finally can rely on is yourself, but with the understanding that yourself in terms of having integrated and having been shaped by the Dhamma itself. And how, and I'll just finish on this by completing this passage, and how does a person live like this? Here, Ananda, a practitioner abides contemplating the body as body, earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, and having put aside all hankering and fretting for the world. And likewise, with regard to feeling tone, to mental states, to dhammas, by abiding, contemplating these things, one enters into the kind of life that provides you a foundation for your own process of evolving and maturing and developing into the sort of person that you aspire to be. Now that's um, the end of my uh, talk. So at this point, I would like to invite uh, any questions or comments. But um, I've still got a few questions over from yesterday, so I'll begin with those. Um, how do you see, or may not, the binary dilemma of Rangdong and Zhendong views of emptiness, in brackets, self, in Tibetan Buddhism in relation to complete vision? Um, this is admittedly a somewhat technical question, um, but it refers to two perspectives on emptiness that we find um, explicitly within the Tibetan tradition, but we actually find these perspectives throughout the history of Buddhist thought. Um, 
The Zhendong view is basically saying that uh, we need to free ourselves from the illusion of self and our attachments and cravings and so on in order that we can have access to who we really are, which turns out to be a, a radiant, transcendent consciousness. Sometimes it's called Rigpa, sometimes it's called Buddha nature or Tathagatagarbha. And so emptiness in this sense is about uh, stripping away those things that actually uh, prevent us uh, from seeing who we really are. Whereas the Rangdong view, literally the self-empty view, is one in which all that we, in a sense, negate in the understanding of emptiness is the fiction that we are a, an independently existing uh, entity that doesn't depend upon causes and conditions. In other words, a, a kind of in, innate grasping at a concept of me um, that is actually a fiction. So by seeing through that fiction, we then uh, free ourselves from what impedes us in living our lives to the full, but it doesn't open us up to some transcendent reality. That's about as, um, as, as briefly as I can, I can say that. And the question is, what does that have to do with complete vision? My sense is that the complete vision that I spoke of yesterday is much uh, more in tune with the Rang Dong perspective. In other words, uh, freeing ourselves from a fiction in order to be able to engage more fully with the life the conventional, ordinary, everyday life that we find ourselves in. But the early Buddhist tradition um, really has very little, if anything, that could support a Zhendong view. Uh, in other words, you won't find Gautama uh, talking about a transcendent consciousness or Rigpa or things like that, which really are much closer to Vedanta, particularly Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, rather than anything found in the discourses of Gautama. Uh, is the sort of person you aspire to be an interpretation of the concept of enlightenment? Partially, yes. But since you've brought up the question of enlightenment, it would probably be helpful just to say a few words about it. Again, the secular Dharma approach that I'm suggesting to you here does not think of enlightenment as gaining some mystical insight into the nature of ultimate truth. Um, I don't even like the word enlightenment. I prefer the translation of awakening. And I follow as my guide to awakening the conclusion of the Buddha's first discourse in which he states very clearly that uh, to be fully awake means to have recognized and performed and mastered these four tasks, embracing life or dukkha, letting go of reactivity, seeing it stopping and cultivating the Eightfold Path. That is the definition the Buddha gives of what it means to be awake. So it's got nothing to do with gaining some special knowledge about the nature of reality at all. There's also no mention, 
mention of anything like the unconditioned or anything of that nature. So becoming the sort of person you aspire to be is in fact a way of rephrasing these four tasks. I need to accept who I am, first task. I need to let go of those habits of mind that keep me stuck in repetitive patterns that prevent me from moving on, from responding authentically as opposed to mechanically. It has to do with grounding my life in this non-reactive awareness. And it has to do with responding to situations through words and deeds and work and all those things. And it's through that process that we may become and fashion ourselves into the kind of person we aspire to be. You, might you say that the self is the Dharma, capital I, capital S, if the Dharma is the path and you have followed it, especially if the self is, as you say, a process? No, I wouldn't say that the self is the Dharma. Uh, the Dharma, again, one of these untranslatable words in a way, but basically in, in, in early Buddhism, the Dharma is understood in a twofold way. It refers on the one hand to the principle of conditionality itself. Uh, Dhamma means law, literally, and conditionality is not just a chaotic, random unfolding, but it's a lawful process. It follows natural laws, it follows uh, psychological, maybe social laws that we now understand mainly through the sciences. And the other dimension of the Dharma is nirvana. And again, nirvana isn't some idea of a Buddhist heaven or some state of perfection, and certainly not equivalent to enlightenment. But Nibbana means the experiences in which we are no longer caught up in our reactive patterns, our greed, our hatred, our confusion. Nibbana is experienced at each moment that we're no longer in a reactive space. So when we meditate, for example, we enter into a Nibbanic space. So the Dhamma... Um, is shorthand for a, a, a life lived non-reactively in relation to a highly conditional and contingent world that is largely out of our control. Uh, that would be the Dhamma. And the self is just the way we talk about the person who does that. If you, in quote marks, in the Sutta of the Passing of the Buddha is plural, does Atman then refer to the Sangha, in other words, to living in spiritual friendship? I've not thought of it that way, um, but that is an interesting idea. Um, you refers to all of you. And so, yes, it's an injunction that he's giving to his community, not an injunction that he's giving to one particular monk, in this case, Ananda. So yes, he's speaking about um, how the community should live. And that means that each member of the community should seek to support each other member of the community in becoming a refuge to themselves, in becoming uh, an autonomous, uh, creative, imaginative, compassionate and wise person. So yes, I would say that. And I think that's a very good point. So thank you. Please comment on John Donne. No man is an island. 
John Donne, of course, the famous Elizabethan poet, and this is his most famous poem, and this is the most famous line from his most famous poem, no man is an island. Yeah, exactly. And here we strike upon one of the crucial paradoxes of the Dharma, in that this is a practice that both um, cultivates a sense of autonomy, as we spoke of yesterday, and autonomy uh, is very much about being an island to yourself. But at the same time, this is a path that is ethical through and through. It's concerned not just with my own well-being. It's concerned with the cultivation of an ethical freedom, autonomy, which enables me to respond to the suffering of others in the most caring, compassionate and wise way. So the two have to somehow go hand in hand. Um, I fully accept John Donne's point that in a very true sense, we cannot separate ourselves from others. We are embedded in networks of relationships, whether it's through our family, whether it's through our society, whether it's through um, our genetics with all other forms of life. We are interwoven into the fabric of the world. But at the same time, we're also autonomous, distinct, unique individuals. How do you square that circle? Well, with difficulty. And that, I think, is one of the, 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 the challenges of this practice, is to find not only a balance, but an actual integration of our autonomy on the one hand, becoming who we can potentially become, and at the same time, our participation in a shared reality, which calls upon us to be constantly engaged with the suffering of the world and the suffering of others. I wrote a book many years ago called Alone with Others, which sought precisely to engage with this question. And if you haven't read that book, you might find it interesting. I've also written a book recently called The Art of Solitude, which is returning once again to this principle. And for me, it's a paradox. It's a puzzle. How is it that we are both simultaneously alone and with others? It's not an option we have to choose. We are always both. And that, in a way, is the challenge of the practice. One of the teachings that I received when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk was, was very helpful here. And that was the idea that to be awake, the defini another definition of awakening, is to fulfill your own purpose and to fulfill the purpose of others through your life. And a Buddha is one who has, in a way, found personal fulfillment through their practice, but also through their practice has arrived at a a condition of life that is of optimal value to helping other beings. Um, can you say something about the word Dharma? Well, I just have. It's the Buddhist teachings, of course, but can there be a more broad definition in secular Dharma? Well, that's pretty much what I already said. And is there a translation which encompasses a wide view with general goodness, poetry, story, movement, maybe, etc.? I've given up trying to translate the word Dharma. 
I don't think it can be done. I mean, I can tell you what it literally means. It means something like law, but that's not going to really help. This is a word I think we're going to have to naturalize. We're going to have to domesticate it. We're going to have to make it part of our own English idiom. And I think in many ways that's already happening. And I think that's more useful than trying to find the right English equivalent term. I don't think there is one. But as we practice, as we become uh, familiar with Buddhist literature and teaching, we begin to understand how the word Dharma is used in the context of this practice. And as Wittgenstein said, the, the meaning of a word is not to be found by looking up its definition in a dictionary. The meaning of the word is found entirely through how it is used in actual real-life situations. That's the way we learn language. We learn how these words are used. So if we're practicing Dharma, then we're going to be reading texts, we're going to be engaged in conversations in which that word will become more and more clear to us, but it won't necessarily get closer to a definition. Uh, yeah, another thing also about that, uh, the, uh, the Buddha clearly, I think, saw the Dharma not as the exclusive property of Buddhism. Um, when he talks of, uh, one, one, uh, when he talk, talks of the Dharma, he says it is something that is understood by the wise. That's one of the definitions, well, not definitions exactly, but one of the qualities of the Dharma is that it's understood by the wise. In other words, it's something naturally uh, intuited by wise people the world over. Uh, it's not a monopoly of Buddhism or Hinduism. That's a very useful way to think of it too. And we can find the Dharma in works of art, of literature, of theater, uh, in other religions. We find it in philosophies. We can find many, many, many ideas and teachings that resonate at a very beautiful pitch with what we think of as Buddhism or the Buddhist or the Buddha Dharma. Have, whoops, have the ideas of Yuval Harari as expressed in Homo Deus influenced or challenged your secular way of thinking on ethics? Um, I've read... Uh, I've read, I have read that book by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, he's probably best known for his earlier book called Sapiens, which I think is brilliant. I think it's a wonderful book. Um, Homo Deus is good, but it's really just an extension of Sapiens. And broadly speaking, yes, I think Harari is offering us a wonderfully clear, well-informed, and I think compassionate account of the kind of beings we are in the kind of world that has evolved and in the kind of situations that we're going to be meeting environmentally, politically, socially in the years to come. And he also has some very interesting things to say about how we may be evolving as, a, uh, as an organism, as a human being. Um, I wouldn't say that I've been influenced particularly by Harari, but I've certainly found that a great deal of my own work finds confirmation and support in the work 
of Harari. I've not really come across anything that I disagree with or can take issue with. I find that he's an extremely helpful ally. And what we discovered um, in reading his third book, which is called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, is that the 21st lesson is Vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation. Uh, for many years, he's been a very committed practitioner of Vipassana as taught by S.N. Goenka. Uh, he dedicates Homo Deus to Goenka, but then he comes completely out of the closet in his third book, in which he advocates uh, the kind of meditations that many of us probably do um, as a crucial uh, element in being able to work towards a collective future that is hopefully more sane and sustainable than the one we live in today. So yes, he's very much an ally. With regard to ethics, would you agree that Buddhists are liable to different levels of moral development as any other spiritual practitioners? For example, with regard to recent political developments, some might agree that particular ethnic groups should not be singled out disproportionately, an obvious evil. Some might reach a higher level of moral development and agree that any police brutality of the unarmed is unacceptable and also an evil. Others might even feel compassion for a murderer. The police offer in, I don't know, oh, the police officer in question who spent his entire life helping uh, people and then one fateful day makes a terrible mistake. And is that also an evil? At a certain level of moral development, would Buddhists not have compassion for the entire experience of human life rife with suffering in so many myriad ways? So the basic question is uh, whether uh, Buddhists, like anybody else, are liable to different levels of moral development. My basic answer is yes. They are, Buddhists are no different from anybody else. And as a, if you are a practicing Buddhist and you're taking it seriously, your practice, then you will hopefully evolve not only in your insights into the nature of your own mind or whatever you're studying or researching, but also the refinement of your own moral compass. And that I think is what uh, Danny's referring to, that as we go through life and we find ourselves encountering moral dilemmas and find ourselves having to respond to those and evaluating our response, both in terms of how it's made us feel personally on as well as the effect it's had on, on others close to us on on the world perhaps we learn from that uh, it's not as though we just get it right or wrong no it's far more a question of learning very often from one's mistakes from one's regrets and it's through that learning process that we become more refined in our ethical sensibility. And um, one of the things that's really bothered me recently uh, on this score is how very senior monks in both Burma and in Sri Lanka are advocating something very close to genocide. Uh, and um, uh, this has made me really question my allegiance to Buddhism as a religion particularly as in the case of Burma or Myanmar and Sri Lanka, it's become the national religion, the state religion. 
Um, here we have examples of men who are regarded as senior members of the ordained Sangha, who are teachers of meditation, who are deeply versed in the Pali text, probably more so than me. And yet we find them behaving in ways that we find shocking and unacceptable. Uh, the willingness to uh, encourage acts of violence against people of other faiths, whether that be Muslims in Burma or whether it be Christians and Hindus and Muslims in Sri Lanka. So that warns me against... Um, trying to somehow institutionalize ethics and turn it into the moral arm of uh, a political state. I feel that if we are to evolve as moral and ethical beings, we need to achieve increasing degrees of autonomy again in our own moral judgments and distance ourselves perhaps from the traditional authorities of priests and monks and others who claim moral authority by virtue of their position within a church or, or a religion. Um, do you think that when we don't know clearly and discern between what we can and cannot control, I'm sorry, I don't quite get this. Do you think that when we don't know clearly and discern between what we can and cannot control is the same as delusion, the third poison. Um, yes, I, this I think is going back to perhaps something I was saying yesterday. And that is that confusion or ignorance, I find more helpful to think of as ethical confusion or ethical ignorance although I prefer to use the word confusion, rather than confusion about what is true or false, what is uh, you know, reality or fiction. And, um, and yes, I think that confusion is often uh, rooted in certain opinions that we hold. You know, I have a certain sense of who I am, I have a certain sense of who you are, I have a certain sense of what's right, a certain sense of what's wrong, perhaps basically just borrowed from the culture and the religion in which I've been brought up. Um, but in terms of my own ethical judgments, I have to often admit that I don't really know how to proceed in this particular situation. Any genuine dilemma um, will be one in which we touch base with our own incapacity to really be clear about what's going on. I'm not sure this is a poison, though, or a fire in, in the analogies the Buddha uses. I think in some ways this kind of not knowing is very healthy. Uh, to be able to admit that I'm confused, to be able to admit that I don't know, is not the same as simply being driven by my confusion and my uh, habits of opinion and my beliefs. It's actually rather refreshing. It's rather honest to be able to say to ourselves, I don't know. And that kind of ignorance um, is, I think, necessary if we are to cultivate um, a real ethical freedom, uh, to be able to say, I don't know. At the same time, to recognize that as an ethical being in confronting suffering, I cannot not act. I'm, as it were, you know, 
required, it's my duty, my obligation to respond to injustice, say, even though I realize that I might be getting it wrong. Um, I'm going to try and make these next ones rather briefer so we can cover them all. I'm very interested in talk in Dharma circles of the no-self, i.e. those who diagnose it as a state, then the no-self discussed in clinical circles as depersonalization. There appears to be no phenomenological difference, but one generates awareness, but one generates awareness and the other fear. What do you think of either state in relation to having a self as a process? Well, again, I think that, you know, I've, I don't find the concept of no self particularly helpful. Um, at the very most, I would say that it can be helpful perhaps in ridding ourselves with an excessive preoccupation with me. But to believe that there is no self, I think, is incoherent. I don't think it makes any sense at all. And I think it might actually even reinforce a certain depersonalization that psychologists speak of. Um, I'm not well enough versed in this field to talk about the connections with awareness and fear. But in either case, I feel it might be helpful, both for Buddhists and for people who are at risk of depersonalization, uh, to try to consider the self as a process as a story, as a narrative, as a project, rather than something that either is or isn't, is this way or that way, something I have or don't have. That's the main point I'm trying to make. I'm thinking of Mary Oliver's poem, The Buddha's Last Instruction, make of yourself a light. What do you think he meant? What kind of light? Okay, this is, a, this is interesting. Um, You'll, this is the passage I read. Um, Therefore, Ananda, you, you should live with oneself as an island, oneself as a refuge. Now, the word in Pali for island is deeper, D-I-P-A. And also, the word in Pali for light, or lamp, actually, is not light, but lamp, is deeper. Same word. So you can translate it either way. Be a light to yourself, be an island to yourself. From a scholarly perspective, it appears that the word deeper in this case probably means island more than it means lamp. But I think it entirely possible that the Buddha was playing on the ambiguity of this term. One should live with oneself as a lamp. One should live with oneself as an island. Um, both, I think, are very um, uh, important and helpful injunctions. Um, and I feel that you can go either way. I don't think it really matters too much. Um, but it's incorrect to say that the Buddha's last instruction was be a lamp. Well, it's ambiguous. We don't really know. The self one aspires to be. Is this pre presumed to be the same for everyone? No. I would argue that in the, in the broadest sense, it's probably similar. In other words, the chances are that 
everybody listening to this talk would aspire to be wise and compassionate and kind and tolerant and open-minded, all of the broad values that we probably share, although we don't know that for sure. And so in a very, very general sense, yes. But unfortunately, or I wouldn't say, but fortunately, we are unique people living in specific situations, in relationships that nobody else has, in different kinds of societies and different uh, language groups on different continents of different ethnicities of different sexual orientations and everything um, we need to define ourselves in terms of our specificity not in terms of our generality so although we might share the same broad values the person I aspire to be would be would, would be the way in which this person me seeks to realize those values in the context of my specific experience. Can you tell us where we might find a quotation from Gautama that I have seen as follows? Believe nothing, no matter where you read it, not even if I have said it, unless it agrees with your own reason and your own common sense. Um, that's, you, that text, as you've cited it probably from memory, um, I don't think you'll find anything quite like that, but I think the text that you're referring to is, um, is the Kalama Sutta. The Kalama Sutta. Um, uh, let's, I'll put, I'll write it down here, the Kalama, oh no, I, don't, I can't get to my keyboard. Um, yeah, the Kalama Sutta, uh, the discourse to the Kalaman people. I'll include it in the text that is posted on the... Um, on the website later. Um, I think we're going to have to stop here. It's gone past quarter past um, uh, four. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.